0: Ask yourself the honest question. Am I pursuing the truth here, or am I trying to win the argument? <laughs> you know, I think for, and I'll include myself, for a lot of us, the thing will devolve into something like an intellectual prize fight. So there's my opponent, and I'm going to win this fight. And even if that means I, I got you know, a couple of sucker punches, or cheat a little bit, or a low blow, or, you know, because the intellectual version of of the low blow or a sucker punch or something is the misrepresentation, um, I say here wittingly, of your opponent's point of view.
1: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. Another episode here. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. and. We're delighted to be joined again by Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, always, always good to see you. Hey, Brandon, good to see you. How's life in Orlando? Oh, it's good. It's good. We're still, you know, in phase one now of the rollout of the Hunker coronavirus. Down. Florida is one of the first states to kind of open the doors, and everyone's, I think, a little on edge to see if there's going to be a yeah. second wave of cases. So we're, our family is yeah. still kind of hunkered down here in our little homestead. Yeah, good, good. Um, a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we get into the meat of today's episode. One is yeah. you've mentioned a few episodes back that you were working on this book on the Creed, and we're going to have a lot more to say oh, yeah. about that when it comes out, probably in 2021. But you just finished it, so it's a big accomplishment. I know it's, it's still on your mind. How, how, how did the book go? Are you happy with how it turned out? Well, I, I say I, I finished it,
0: entre guillemets, as the French say, um, meaning the basic. Kind of draft, the first draft of it is is done, but this is a book that I conceived. Oh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, working on it and dribs and drabs, and then suddenly this coronavirus came and uh, it did open a window. I must say to that, I, I had more time. And think about writing. You know, is for writing. you Know this, Brandon. You need a lot of time because. You just have to focus. It's impossible. Like, oh, I got an appointment at, at you know, 9, it's over at 10, another appointment at 11. Once you write in between those two? That never works. It just doesn't. You can't do it. You need, like, you no, know, I've got from 8 until noon, you know? So suddenly, time like that opened for me, and I was able to get, I'd say, the bulk of it done. I'm at the stage now of kind of reading through it. Uh, one thing you also know, all authors know this, when you're writing a book you're not reading it. You're writing it. And it can be a very different experience than to go back and actually read it the way another reader would. And so you got to make adjustments. Um, So anyway, I'm I'm happy. It's basically done. I hope it can be used in a lot of different ways. I wrote it at a pretty high level academically um, because I hate dumbed-down Catholicism, so I didn't want to do that. But it's also designed for nuns right it's designed for the unaffiliated it's designed for seekers and searchers and people that don't like religion it's it's designed for those that maybe are looking but you know they've they've wandered away etc so anyway we'll see we'll see if it works
1: you know after briefly reviewing the manuscript it it, to me it's in the same genre in the same category as (laughs) joseph Ratzinger's introduction to christianity it's a very thoughtful Theologically serious reflection on the basics of Christian belief and I can't help but think when it comes out It's going to be the perfect book to give to a smart non-Catholic whether they're agnostic or atheist or they think you know religion and philosophy has nothing smart to offer the world This book will will show them that Christianity is a thinking faith. It's a smart faith So we'll talk way more about that as it develops. Yeah, good. Good. Another thing I wanted to discuss with you is people have been so consoled by these daily masses that you and Father Steve have been offering Mm -hmm. from your chapel there in Santa Barbara. I think we started them on March 17th, somewhere around. I think it was St. Patrick's Patrick's Day, Day. in fact, when it started. Yeah, it was. Um, And we've been offering it every single day since then. And uh, Bishop, I got to tell you, you don't receive all of the emails that come into Word on Fire. They're filtered through your team. But Every day we get dozens and dozens and dozens of emails from people explaining how meaningful and consoling it is that at a time when the parishes are closed, they're still able to participate at least, you know, in a limited way in the liturgy. But a lot of people have been asking, you know, hey, this is great. Can you keep doing it even after the coronavirus goes away? Can you do it (laughs) perpetually and offer these daily masses every day? We've talked about that a little bit at Word on Fire, but what's, what's your thinking? What do you think about that? Well,
0: first of all, I'm very grateful to people who have responded well, and and we're delighted that that we've been able to offer this uh, service. Uh, Secondly, we shouldn't continue it once the virus is over, because we want people going back to Mass in their parishes. We don't want them relying on on this sort of virtual Mass. So I I don't believe in that. But here's what we're thinking about, Brandon, is um, maybe if we do a program just dedicated to preaching. So if I were to preach... I do the Sunday sermon for, the, for various outlets, but maybe do that as a video. Um, the Sunday sermons are even, even more frequently than that. So we'll see. Uh, that might be a way of continuing some of the momentum from the masses, where I would preach on a more regular basis um, on video and make that available through YouTube and Facebook and so on.
1: So we'll keep everybody updated as things develop, but for the near future, we plan to keep offering these daily masses as long as the restrictions on parishes are in place. And then when they lift, we'll see where we go yeah. from there. Okay, today we are going to be talking about how to disagree well. This is a skill, and it's one not usually taught yeah. or developed for many people going through middle school or high school or college. You know, I'm thinking back to my college days and We were just never taught how to have a serious, respectful conversation with people with whom we disagree. But it's a skill set that needs to be uh, encouraged and taught and developed. I found an article recently from the popular Protestant pastor Tim Keller. He outlined what he described as six principles for how to argue when you disagree. And so I thought for this episode, we'd, uh, we'd talk through these principles and unpack each of them. There's a lot of good crossover here uh, with what you've previously written in your book, Arguing Religion, which in some ways yeah. took these yeah. principles and applied them specifically to religious disagreements. But these are broader yeah. principles that will apply to any topic. So here's the first one. Number one. Take full responsibility for even unwitting, unintended misrepresentations of other people's views. And Tim Keller says this means to avoid rash judgment, to assume blame for misunderstanding. If if you say something, the other person says, well, that's not what I mean or what I believe. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, I must have misunderstood you. Um, Talk about this principle. Take full responsibility for even unwitting misrepresentations of others' views.
0: We know, Brandon, I would put that and all the other principles kind of under this rubric. To ask yourself the honest question, am I pursuing the truth here or am I trying to win the argument? You know, I think for, and I'll include myself, for a lot of us, the thing will devolve into something like an intellectual prize fight. So there's my opponent and I'm going to win this fight. And even if that means I, I got you know a couple of sucker punches or cheat a little bit or a low blow, or you know, because the intellectual version of, of the low blow or a sucker punch or something is the misrepresentation, um, I say here wittingly, of your opponent's point of view. So you'll take advantage of perhaps a, a little chink in the armor or a slight weakness in the argument, or boy I can exploit that, because th- what he just said there is ambiguous enough. To make me, you know, say, "Here's what you really are saying." So, what am I interested in? The truth that both of us are trying to find together, or winning the argument. If it's winning the argument, then I'm in a bad space, and I should get out of the um, get out of the ring. I mean, you, I've, you've created a kind of boxing ring. You shouldn't do that at all. It's rather the image of two friends having a conversation and pursuing the truth together now it doesn't mean for a second that it's all just sort of wimpy and agreeable no no i mean you're having a good conversation you know you'll disagree and you'll say no no i don't think that's the right way to to put it so i don't say you can't be edgy but are you trying to win or are you seeking the truth and i think that's a, a master principle behind all of these
1: when I think of this principle, the first person that comes to mind is Socrates, You know, the first great philosopher. Yeah. We find him in Plato's dialogues, interacting with all sorts of people with whom he disagrees. And every time he meets one of these intellectual opponents, almost the whole conversation is him asking questions. He's really making affirmative statements. He's yeah. asking questions and they're all of the form like, well, do you mean this or do you mean that? Or what, what, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. You know, Explain a little more, give me a little more understanding. You get the sense through the whole thing that he has intellectual humility, that he really cares about understanding what the other person's view is before responding. And it's only like at the end of the dialogues where he'll then respond and offer his own take. And I've always seen that as the model of making sure you understand the other person's view before you respond to it.
0: Yeah, and it's the combination of the epistemic and and the ethical, if you want. You know, if we forget our ethics as we go about the business of looking for truth and what's the point maybe even you won the argument maybe if there was a a group of a a jury of your peers and and you won nine of them said you know yeah you won the argument um so what if you've lost the person and you've lost the truth you haven't really come to greater truth you just happen to win the argument that wouldn't get you very far uh and as you say socrates is in many ways, the master figure behind the whole Western intellectual tradition. Because we say all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, as Whitehead put it. But, you know, Plato's hero was Socrates. So in a way, he does positively haunt the whole Western tradition. That he's a sort of asymptotically approached ideal of how to engage in intellectual conversation. And even, even the model of conversation rather than uh, pugilism, <laughs> you know, we're conversing, we're, we're both in love with a transcendent third, namely the truth, and we're trying to find it together. Uh, that's a better way to approach it than I'm in a boxing match with my opponent.
1: I'm glad you raised that distinction between conversation and pugilism because I found yeah. often today people associate disagreement on the level of ideas with hatred on the level of persons. That if you disagree with me, you're fighting against me and who I am as a person. We've lost even the conception of being able to disagree healthily, respectfully, charitably. How do we recover that? How do we recover the idea that you can disagree with my ideas, but still love me and respect me? I think one thing is to make sure that when
0: you're disagreeing, you're doing it in a way that's, that's loving, that you're signaling your interest in the truth and in that person. Uh, You know, this is mea culpa. I'll go back sometimes over things that I've said on the internet. how could I have said that? When, you know, either in the heat of the moment or even like, hey, I think I can say something really clever here that will undermine what the person's saying. One way to do it is, and this is okay, I think, to use a little bit of humor, you know, to to gently maybe, not poke fun, that's not the right word, but use humor a bit to uh, make your point. Because you want to signal, I'm in love with the truth, and I'm in in love with you. I'm interested in in you as a person. Uh,
1: When we lose that, it does devolve into, into a boxing match. All right, let's move on to Tim Keller's second principle. Again, six principles on how to disagree well. The second principle is this. Never attribute an opinion to your opponents that they themselves do not own. And the specific example he gives is the fallacy of guilt by association, that you shouldn't assume that if person A quotes a particular author favorably at any point, then person A must agree with everything that that author has ever said in, in every context. We find that all the time, especially on the internet. Don't you see the same?
0: Constantly. And, and I agree with him. It's, it's almost like a, I don't know, it's a weird mental tick that people have, um, because you know, the thing is, I, I love the, the whole tradition of, of thought and conversation. I've been around for a while. I've read a lot of people. And so, yeah, I, I know something that, you know, Origen said this, and Teilhard de Chardin said this, and, and I might cite those people when making a particular point. And what I'm citing is typically something that, you know, is pretty innocuous or, yeah, that's helpful. That does throw light on it. Yes, but Origen also said... Or, but Tayar was also condemned for, well, yeah, man, I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm not making a global claim about everything they've ever said or done. Um, I said to people, especially when they go after, after your uh, references morally, you know, how could you refer to that person who lived such a terrible life? Well, if that's our principle, I would only cite Jesus and his mother. <laughs> be the only two people I could ever cite because everyone you cite is a sinner morally. And everyone's a sinner intellectually, meaning everyone I know in the Greek tradition has said something stupid. And Thomas Aquinas is my hero. Do I think Thomas is right about absolutely everything? Well, no, absolutely not. I think Thomas made some egregious mistakes. Uh, So did Augustine. I mean, so what? That's just the way it goes. Now, my model here is Thomas Aquinas himself who cites a range of figures, Christian, Jewish, non-believers, scientists, pagans, heretics even. Look at at Origen, whom he cites frequently, very positively, even as Thomas fully knows that Origen took some weird positions with which he disagrees, but yet he's very happy to cite him positively. So I just wish, it's a tick, it's 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 a dysfunction, that we just get over that tendency because it gets us nowhere. You know, you want to say, look, I'm not arguing that he said everything right in his whole life. I'm saying this particular point, he's making a valid observation. You know? So, yeah, I, it's, it's just a, it's a conversation stopper. You know, if, if our model is conversation, let's keep this conversation alive, we're looking for the truth together, that's a conversation stopper,
1: and therefore it's something we should avoid. You know, to me, it's always a litmus test of whether the other person is genuinely interested in fruitful, productive, right. honest, respectful conversation or not. If they played the card that you quoted this person, that person's heretical or unorthodox, therefore you you know, went off the deep end or something like that, it's almost inevitably a sign that they're not interested in, in a serious conversation. Do you wish, Brandon, we're both uh, lovers of sports.
0: Uh, you know, when you're playing a game, a serious game. What do you absolutely need? You need a referee, or, or the game is going to devolve very quickly, right? You're playing basketball, you're playing baseball, you're playing golf, whatever. There's got to be somebody, a rules official, to say nope, nope, no, no. You just did there. You guys are having a great game, but you know that move. No, no, that's not basketball anymore. You can't go out of bounds and run around. You can't stop dribbling. You can't. You know, um, if there if there could be referees <laughs> with an intellectual conversation to, to blow the whistle and say like what we we'll call this this uh, problem like you know the uh, globalization of your citation or something just throw a throw a flag flag a flag oh, stop everybody you know and, and a little penalty like come on don't do that um, but we don't have referees so we have
1: to kind of muddle through so I encourage listeners to visit the Word on Fire jobs page we'll now be accepting applicants yeah. for YouTube <laughs> Combox referees if you feel like you have the yeah, requisite skills I'd like that they be blowing the whistle all the time, <laughs> <me>. <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, Tim Keller's third recommendation. He says, take your opponent's view in their entirety, not selectively. And I want to read a quote here. It's hmm. a few sentences long. Uh, he applies it specifically to theological disagreement and says, a host of Christian doctrines have a sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, dimension about them. And without both emphases, we can fall into heresy. What if we find Mr. A making what appears to be an unqualified statement that sounds very unbalanced? If that is all Mr. A has ever said about the subject, it would be right to conclude something about his position. But what if Mr. A has been speaking or writing about these statements to an audience that already believes certain things, and therefore he was assuming those points of doctrine without stating them? At a minimum, Mm -hmm. we must realize that Mr. A simply can't say everything that he believes about a subject every time he speaks, So we should not pull out certain statements by Mr. A while overlooking or actually concealing explanations, qualifications, or balancing statements that he have made elsewhere. I mean, this is is persistent every day on the internet. I see this all the time. I'm assuming you do too. Oh my gosh, yeah.
0: But you didn't say, Bishop, you know, yeah, the point you're making, that's valid. But you didn't say yes, I know, I had a combox box like that, you know? Or, yeah, I know, it was a 900-word article. Or even, yeah, I know, it was a 25-page article, but I'm dealing with a topic that's so multivalent that I, I couldn't possibly say everything that you have to say. Which is why I've always found that criticism sort of cheap and therefore sort of annoying. You know, when someone says, oh, yeah, that's great, Bishop, but, you know, you didn't all right, why don't we just stay with what I did say and let's analyze that and stay with it. And if I have time, you know, then we'll look at another side. One thing I've heard is, Brandon, when people like read me on a given topic and they say, yo, but what about... I'll say, why don't you take a, just a little bit of time, a little bit of time and go through the archive of my videos or articles or books or something. I, I said, I'd be willing to bet you're going to find... The balancing perspective that you're looking for, but maybe just give me the benefit of the doubt that I can't say everything necessary. You know that joke about that? It's the, like the way the Germans write it, that a German scholar will write a 19-volume work called Das Elefant. You know, like the absolutely ex, the exhaustive study of an elephant. Even there, someone's going to say. Oh, yeah, but you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So now imagine a little article or a video or even a small book. There's no way that you can say everything that has to be said. So it's a kind of cheap, um, easy, too easy. You know, put it in Thomas Aquinas' language, there's always a said contra, right? So when Thomas, you know, makes his argument and first he lays out the the opposite point of view, then they'll say, said contra. But on the other hand... No matter what you say, there's always a said contra. Okay, good. So the conversation goes on. But what the problem is, the sort of aggressive uh, attack on someone because they haven't said everything they can possibly say. You know? Another reason, too, Brandon, why I like the, the wonderful sort of eclecticism of the Catholic conversation so, yeah, there are things I'm able to say, given my background and my interests and my experience. Okay, good. I, I can't say everything. That's why I need you and I need everybody else who will, will bring light from their perspective. Good, good. Let's all have this lively
1: conversation. All right, let's move on to principle number four. These are Tim, Tim Keller's principles on how to disagree well. Number four is to represent and engage your opponent's position in its very strongest form, not Mm -hmm. in a weak straw man form. Say something about this.
0: Yeah, and I think we talked about maybe sometime before. I first heard the term steel man in this debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. So we all know straw man, which is you set up a kind of very weak, flimsy version of your opponent's argument, and then you easily knock it down. And someone says, well, come on, man, that's not fair. I'm making a far more substantial point here, and you're just knocking down a flimsy simulacrum of my argument. Okay, we all know that. And that's bad form, but people do it all the time. So what's the opposite of that? And and I heard, I don't know if it was Peterson himself or the moderator, used the term, well, now steel man... Sam's argument. I thought, oh, what does it mean, steel man? And then, ah, I know. So the opposite of straw man. Make your opponent's argument as strong as you can. It accomplishes a lot of things. One, it convinces your opponent or your interlocutor, oh, he's really listening to me. He he really has heard my point of view. He really has thought it through. You know, He really knows what I'm arguing. And... Now we can really make some progress because otherwise we're just shadow boxing. We're, we're playing with, with these straw men and we're getting nowhere. Um, so I love that principle. One thing, like, you know, we both know about this in internet forums and stuff, is instead of leaping toward the, let me refute you as humiliatingly as I can, an opening move like, now if I understand you properly, what you're saying here is, and then even make it stronger than the person. Did. There's my Thomas Aquinas model, right? Thomas, when he lists the objectors to a position, you know, given the, the, the rapier quality of his own mind, he was able to formulate them far more persuasively than the opponents themselves. He steel steel manned the argument. Good. That's a good uh, uh,
1: technique. All right, the fifth principle is to seek to persuade not antagonize, and then he adds the mm-hmm. caveat, but watch your motives. And he explains, we must take care that our polemics do not unnecessarily harden and antagonize our opponents. We should seek to win them, as Paul did Peter when they had their disagreement, not to be rid of them. I think this kind of echoes something <laughs> you said earlier, that the purpose is to, yeah. is to win the other person, to persuade them, not to just win the battle and win the day. Oh
0: gosh, you know, I, again, mea culpa. When I think, I oh, hear I'm a priest, I'm a bishop, I'm involved in, in uh, the work of evangelization. And I can catch myself if I, you know, go back to a con box and think, like, well, what was I doing there? I mean, how would that statement or that comment have landed in that person's heart and mind? And maybe I was right and I was making a valid, you know, comeback. But if it just alienated the person, what's the point of that? Now again, I don't think it means we just turn all namby pamby. I mean, I think you can be sharp and you can be clear, and you can even you know I think you correct someone if someone has really gone overboard. Uh, I just the other night there was somebody and I just said, no, that's really over dramatic. Like they were making this super strong, hyper dramatic claim, and I just said, no, no, that, that's way too you know hyper dramatic. I think that's okay. But keep in mind, behind those words, there's a person somewhere typing them uh, with feelings and with a history and a background, aspirations, fears, etc. But it's hard, Brandon. We're um, creatures who've evolved from um, uh, tens of thousands of years of fighters. We're here because our ancestors survived, often in this really tough, environment. So that's deep in us. And transpose it now from the physical order to the intellectual order, same thing, kicks in. You know? Someone's attacking me. Well, you know, dukes are up and let's have a fight about this. So I
1: get it. It's deep in us. It's deep in our, in our DNA. Um, but I think we got to resist it. All right. Here's the sixth and final principle from Tim Keller. He says, Remember the gospel and stick to criticizing the theology because only God sees the heart. And he clarifies, don't attack the person or their motivations, just their ideas. So don't say, well, you just believe that because X, Y, Z, or, you know, you got that idea from this person or that source, so it's discredited. Talk about the need to just sticking to the theology or the ideas and not their motivations or their heart.
0: Yeah, and it's related to what we've been saying, but it's the classic uh, ad hominem issue here, right? An ad hominem argument when you're attacking the person, not the ideas. And, man, is it tempting. It's like people do it. They've done it for thousands of years. They still do it today. And as we've said before, Brandon, the Internet, uh, which I love in so many ways, but it's a, it's a dangerous space because it awakens this very deeply in people and enables it. Uh, it's so easy to attack a person uh, when you can't see him. He can't see you. All he can see are your words. Uh, it's very tempting to say. Oh, what an idiot you are! What a jerk you are! And what, what a clearly, you know, um, mixed-up person you are. Um, so, yeah, it's just the pe- the penalty flag has got to be thrown when it turns out hominem. We're talking about ideas, and let me let me s- tell you why I think your idea is not right. That's okay, but <laughs> leave the person out of it. Like, let me tell you why I think you're not right. Now we're in bad space. <music>
1: Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today, we're hearing from Michael here in my state of Florida. He has a question for Bishop Barron about prayer. Here's his question.
0: Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Michael. I'm from Deerfield Beach, Florida. And my question is about prayer. I'm wondering, as a priest, if you ever um, get bored or it becomes rote or if you're ever not in the mood to pray
1: uh, I'm wondering what you do about that, and uh, maybe you can give us some uh, guidance and some ob- observations and feedback that can help
0: in, a, in my own prayer life. Uh, so thank you. Yeah, good question, and it's one that echoes up and down the centuries. Um, listen to people as they address the, the great spiritual teachers. You'll often hear that question about dryness, boredom, distraction, in prayer. Uh, I'll answer uh, directly the first part of it. Yeah, Sure. Sometimes I get bored or distracted during prayer. Sometimes I'm not in the mood to pray. But let me let me add this. I think here, like anything else, this improves with practice. So uh, you know, when I first started playing baseball as a little kid, um, I didn't know what I was doing. And but by doing it over and over again, by submitting myself to certain teachers and masters that taught me, by by playing a lot, I reached a point where I. I got pretty good at it, and and I really enjoyed it. Now, even at that level, were there times when practice was kind of tiresome? Yeah, sure. Or basketball. I wasn't as good at basketball. I was a better baseball player, but, uh, you know, I'm learning the game, learning how to dribble. I remember the coach putting—I don't know if they still have those, Brandon— like these little weird glasses that come out like this so that you can't see the ball. It forced you to dribble without looking, right? Well, it's just really hard when I first started that. And then he had us— Dribbling between the legs like this, just to work on, you know, the rhythm and stuff. Well, yeah, it's hard. Heck, in the beginning, it's very hard, and um, I I'd get, I I'd get frustrated with it. In time, staying with it, yeah, I was able to do those things, and then to play better, and then it became much more natural and a joy. Prayer, I remember distinctly when I first started praying the office, uh, the the liturgy of the hours. I wasn't a priest yet. I was a seminarian, a Catholic U. I was nineteen. And it was Robert Sokolowski, uh, one day in class, who kind of signaled to us the importance of that prayer. So I I went out and bought the little one volume. I didn't know how to use it. I'm trying to figure out the ribbons. And I I didn't know what I was doing. And it was kind of like tiresome, or what is the point of this, and just kind of going through. But now I've been at that for a long time. I've been praying that, and since I was ordained a priest or deacon, I've been obliged to pray it. Now I can tell you honestly, my holy hour in the morning where I pray a good deal of the office is my favorite time of the day. It's a time I savor. I love it. Am I bored? Hardly ever, I would say. I spend an hour. Does it seem tiresome? No. Honestly, not now. Used to. If you, like, Even like 30 years ago, if you said, now do a holy hour every day, I would have found that hard. I know that 30 years ago, 25 years ago even. Now I don't. I love it. And, and it's come, I'm not claiming what a saint I am, it's just it's coming from a long, long practice of prayer. So here's my, I'll close with it, here's my advice to you, is just do it. You know, it's like when I was a little kid and, hey, I find this really hard to dribble with these things on a, look man, just do it. And I know you're not going to get a thrill from it yet, but trust me, do it. Trust the discipline, trust the process. Here's the Liturgy of the Hours. I don't know how this thing works and the Psalms and why. Look, just do it. Just do it. Get a rhythm of prayer. Hang in there. Um, and even when you find it tiresome, do it. Day in and day out, I think you'll find that your ability to pray without boredom and distraction and dryness uh, will increase.
1: Well, thanks for the question, Michael. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, send it in to us at askbishopbarron.com. That's where you can record the question on any device. Before we go here, I want to emphasize one more time that our new film series and study program titled The Sacraments is now available. Bishop Barron has given six electric, beautiful talks on each of the seven sacraments. Some of the episodes combine the sacraments together. But you can watch the entire episode one for free by visiting wordonfireshow.com sacraments, And if you want to watch the whole series, the best way to do that is to join the Word on Fire Institute. If you sign up for the Institute today, you'll get immediate access to all six episodes of this new film series. So sign up today at wordonfire.institute. Join over 10,000 other Catholics and evangelists and learning how to spread the faith. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.
0: Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, I encourage you to share it and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel.